Well, good morning. Can you hear me? All right. Welcome back. We are going to be in Colossians 1, starting in verse 14. Uh, the last time we were together, someone, I think it was Sarah, asked about what this symbol is uh, on the front. So as long as it's here, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you. So, I know this probably doesn't help you at all. This is the Greek word Christos, for Christ, and the first two letters are chi and rho. And so it's, a, um, it's an abbreviation for Christ that was used in the ancient church to kind of as a stand-in for Christ. So sometimes as they were writing uh, either, you know, inscriptions or, or documents or things like that, and they would come to, to want to say Christ, they would write this instead, um, sort of following the Jewish tradition of not saying the name of God, something like that. So uh, it's just cool. I like it. All right, so we're in Colossians 1. Like Cheryl said, we, we talked the last time we were together about Paul's prayer for the Colossians and praying that they would um, walk worthy uh, of the Lord and would please him in all respects. And then those four kind of characteristics that described uh, what a, a life worthy of, of the Lord was like. And then he talks about giving thanks to the Father who, who qualified you, who rescued you, who transferred you. Uh, it's talking about all this work that the Father has done to save you. And that at the end of verse 13, he says he's done it through or in his beloved son. So we're being transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so then what happens in verse 14, verse 14 kind of becomes almost a bridge or a transition verse where he, he's mentioning at the mention of the beloved son in verse 13, then he starts into this description of, of who the son is and what he's done that's almost like a, a, a parenthesis. It's like kind of a break in his thought, right? Because he's been praying, and then he mentions the Son, he mentions Christ, and he goes off on almost this tangent to say, now let, let me, now that I talk, I'm talking about Christ, let me tell you who Christ is. Let me remind you who this is. Uh, and so everything that we, we have up through really verse 20 is sort of a continuation of this thought of who Christ is. He's, he's praying for the Colossians, and, and then he, he moves into just, it's like, it, it almost feels like Paul just lost his train of thought and just decided to go start talking about something else. But I think a couple things. One, Paul probably is just so taken with Christ that he can't help but, but uh, be effusive with his praise when he starts thinking about him. And also, he's, he's doing something in mentioning all of these attributes that we're going to look at about Christ. Uh, he's doing something uh, relevant for the Colossians, and we're going to talk about that as we get closer into it, um, but, but why he's, he's talking about these things now. Um, so, verses 14 to 20, uh, I have is, is, uh, is one section, and it's Paul talking about the Son being the Lord of creation and of the new creation. And we'll talk about what that means. And verses 21 to 23, so if, if basically what he's done is in, in verses 9 to 13, he's focused in on the Colossians and said, this is what God is doing in you. This is what God has done in you. This is what I'm praying God is going to do in you. And then uh, verse 14, he starts, to, he starts to zoom out more. He says, well, in in the Son, you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Then verse 15, he really zooms out and he says, now let me tell you about who, who Christ is in relation to the entire universe and what he's done and what he's doing. And then verse 21 to 23, he zooms back in to talk about the Colossians in particular. Right? So he zooms out, talks about who Christ is, and then zooms back in to talk about who Christ is to the Colossians. We're going to pick up in verse 14. So verse 13, he's mentioned this, the beloved son. So verses 14 and 15, and one of the reasons I've put these together 
is because both of them actually begin with a relative pronoun, which that just means who or in whom, something like that. And so verse 14 begins with in whom, and verse 15 is actually not a new sentence. Uh, it actually begins with, uh, where it, our translation says he, actually begins with who. So the beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. And so it's another descriptor of the beloved son. And so it's really just part of the same sentence. So it's this continuation of, of describing uh, the beloved son, Christ. Now we put a period there and change the who to he because we have to do that for English to work. Um, but it's really part of the same sentence, part of the same thought in Greek. He starts with what Christ has done for the Colossians, right? He, God qualified them, rescued them, transferred them. He did it through the Son, and that they have redemption, that is, the forgiveness of sins. And so um, the, this phrase, the forgiveness of sins, really, really modifies the idea of redemption. It explains it. So in whom we have redemption. Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? The, the forgiveness of sins. We have the forgiveness of sins uh, in him. Remember, we talked about this in the first week, the centrality of the idea of being in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we have all of these benefits uh, that come to us because we're connected to him. We're in him by faith. And then as he moves into verse 15, now he's, he zooms out and he starts talking about the identity and supremacy of this beloved son, Christ. And even though it sort of interrupts the flow of his letter, because it seems like he's just forgotten that he was praying and starts just talking about Christ, it's not really... Uh, random. Certainly it's not random because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and he has intent with everything that he does. Um, but it could be that what he's doing is he's using this opportunity where he's mentioned Christ to remind the Colossians about the truth of, of who Christ is. So remember, one of the features uh, of the challenges that the Colossians are facing at the time, even though we don't know exactly what it was, as so we try to piece it together, we find that, um, that what, whatever it is that they're dealing with, it was pressures or false teaching or something that is not according to Christ. That was the big problem with it. And we, we get there in, in Colossians 2.8. It says, Don't, make sure you're not taken captive by anything that's not according to Christ. And so if you have people who are saying uh, either what Paul says about Jesus is wrong or what Epaphras says about Jesus is wrong, or it's right, but there's more. You need something more than Jesus. Uh, and Paul is, is writing to say, no, that's, that's not how this works. It's Christ and Christ alone. He's all you need. Right? And so this section would serve to maybe remind the Colossians about the absolute supremacy of Christ as the Lord, which has and bearing on the rest of the letter. So the Christ that he's describing here in, in verses 15 to 20 or verses 14 to 20 um, is the Christ that later in the letter he's going to continue to tell them is everything that they need. So right up front, he's, he's trying to paint a picture of the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. If they have him, they need nothing else. Now, verses 15 to 20, you can kind of split into two sections. Verses 15 to 17, um, he's talking specifically about uh, the relationship between Christ and creation, that Christ is the Lord of creation. And then in verses 18 to 20, we're going to talk about uh, how Christ is the Lord of the new creation. So verse 15 says that this beloved son, Christ, is 
the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Right away, if you're, you're reading, you should stop and say, what in the world does that mean? Because I can tell you, if you were to talk to a Jehovah's Witness, what they would say it means. They would say it means that Jesus is created. They'd say, see, look at that. He's the firstborn of all creation. If you're the firstborn, it means there was a time when you didn't exist, if you were born. And so he's the firstborn of all creation. Maybe Jesus is the first and greatest of God's creatures. Maybe he's God-like, but he's not God. And, and we need to be prepared to engage people in conversations like that and to show them from the Bible why we think, no, we don't think that's what it means. We think it means something different. So I want to I explain what I think it means and, and kind of how I got there. So there's three uh, Bible study tactics, uh, techniques that you can use for this and that I, uh, that I used as, we, as, I, as I went through this. Um, the first is uh, doing a word study. We talked about this, if any of you were in the, uh, the study we did, Mining God's Word, How to Study the Bible, we talked about doing word studies I can post with the resources from this lesson, all the parts of that lesson where we talked about it, and I made some videos and showed you how to do it using an online tool called Blue Letter Bible. Um, so doing a word study is important because remember, we're reading translations. And uh, just like in English, multiple wor or words can have multiple meanings. And the meaning is often determined by the context, most often determined by the context. Um, but because most of us aren't able to read the original language, we need to ha have a way of being able to say, well, wh what could this word mean? And so you can read it in multiple translations. That's one way to do it. You can also take a word like firstborn and say, I want to look at where this is used elsewhere in the Bible. And I want to look at the possible meanings that it has in the original language to see, could it mean something other than just the first one born? Which is the way that maybe a Jehovah's Witness would read it. So when, when you look into, if you were to, to use Blue Letter Bible or a tool like that to, to do a word study and you were to look at a, a, a lexicon or a dictionary that had this, this Greek word in it, you would find that it could mean a couple different things. It can mean the first one born in terms of time, right? So I have three kids, and Grant is my firstborn. He's five, right? There was a time when he was not, and now he is, and he is very much so. But there was a time when he didn't exist. So he's my firstborn in that sense. Now. The, the word in Greek can mean something different as well, though. It doesn't have to mean one who is first in terms of time. It can mean one who is first in terms of rank. Okay? Uh, it can be used metaphorically to talk about rank or privilege or honor. Um, this is a, a word that would have been used to describe the one in a Greek or Roman household who was the heir. Uh, whether or not they were actually the firstborn, they could be appointed firstborn, and so they were the heir, they were to receive the inheritance, they were to run the family, and so forth. Um, this is used actually in, in uh, Psalm, in, in the Greek translation of Psalm 89.27, about David. Um, and so, uh, either about David or maybe the Davidic kings in Judah, God says, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. If we're talking about David, David's not the firstborn, right? He's the lastborn. Um, and he wasn't the firstborn in terms of he wasn't the first king in Israel. So the idea that God could say, I'm going to make him or appoint him to be my 
firstborn means that firstborn can mean someone other than the one who is first in terms of time. It can mean one who is first in terms of rank, who is going to exercise the power. So we're not just talking about birth order. Right? He's, it's paralleled with the idea that, that God is going to make David the highest of the kings of the earth. And so this gives us a window into how the word could be used. Um, not just that um, he's the firstborn of all creation, but maybe better, he's the firstborn over creation, which is a, a way that you could translate that as well. Now, just because the word can have those two meanings doesn't mean that we get to say, oh, it could mean this and we could mean this. I really like that it could mean this, and so that's what I'm going to pick. That's not how it works. I really want it to mean first in rank. I have a vested interest in having it mean that. Uh, but just because it could mean that doesn't mean that it does. We have to do some more work. So this is just part of what we, what we do. Another thing that we can do to, to try to say, well, now that we know that it could mean that, how can we really begin to tell which one it does mean? One, uh, another way that we can do that is to compare Scripture with Scripture. If the Bible has one author, the Holy Spirit, through many human authors, but ultimately one big A author, then we can, uh, we can believe that that it's going to be consistent with itself, right? It's not going to contradict, regardless of what everybody else says. We believe, no, we don't think it contradicts. In fact, it can be very helpful to look at other Scripture and to see how it might help us interpret what we're reading and maybe uh, is a bit confusing. And so uh, I gave you a sheet that just says comparing Scripture with Scripture. It's got fun little boxes on it. If you want to look at that, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, is very similar in its content and some of its language to Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that Paul was drawing on the book of Hebrews or that the book of Hebrews was drawing on Paul. It's possible. It's also possible, maybe more likely, that both the author of Hebrews, who I'm pretty sure was not Paul, uh, and Paul were both drawing on a common uh, tradition, maybe an early hymn or a creed or something like, like that, but some, something that, that the church and the apostles were teaching about, about Jesus. It's almost like lyrics to a song, and so sometimes you'll see this section in Colossians called the hymn to Christ because it, it's very poetic and it almost reads like, like a song or a psalm or a hymn. So we look at this and we see the parallels, right? So both are talking about the Son. Uh, both have some mention of the idea that, that He's the image of God, or, or in, in Hebrews, He's the exact representation of His nature, and those ideas are related. Um, you have uh, in, in Colossians 1.16, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, but by Him all things were created, and all things have been created through Him and for Him. And in Hebrews, that through him, he, God, made the world. And something about uh, the fact that Christ holds all things together, right? In verse 17, in him all things hold together. And in Hebrews 1, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And so the one place where, where there's not maybe an exact parallel in terms of language, but it might help us interpret what Paul means by the firstborn of all creation is that here in Colossians, where he's called the firstborn of all creation, in Hebrews it says that God appointed him the heir of all things, which would seem to match pretty well with that other meaning of the idea of firstborn, that he's been appointed as the heir of all things. And then a third um, thing that, that we can do, and we always should be doing, is uh, reading in context. If all we had was verse 15, then maybe we'd have to say, well, it's possible the Jehovah's Witnesses are right. There's really nothing that we can say that contradicts them. But verse 15 is followed by verse 16. And verse 16 helps explain to us what Paul means. 
right? So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then verse 16 begins with four, which means he's explaining something that came before. So what's he explaining? Well, I think he's explaining what it means that he's the firstborn of all creation. Well, Paul, what do you mean that he's the firstborn of all creation? Well, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. That's everything that kind of captures everything that's created. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, this is kind of odd for us, but, but for, for Paul and in the ancient world, these were terms, especially with, with the Jews, these were terms that they used for spiritual powers. Um, at the end of Ephesians and Ephesians 6, um, Paul talks about how we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So he's using the same language to talk about spiritual beings, demons, uh, things like that. And it could be that he specifically includes these to describe um, the invisible things, right? So all of these things would be what Paul is talking about, the invisible things. It could be that he's using, uh, he's specifically calling these out because later in the book of Colossians, we're going to find that um, it, it may have been that people in Colossae or in the region, and certainly we know this is true, would have been uh, worshiping or had an unhealthy obsession with other spiritual beings, maybe even angels, right? And so um, Paul talks in, in chapter 2 about don't be led astray by those who are telling you you need to uh, worship angels. So it could be that, that Paul is kind of throwing this in in preparation to tell him this so that he can point back to it and say, you know, you're being tempted by these people or you're being told by these people you need to worship angels. But I'm telling you that Christ, who you're supposed to worship, made them. And so if he made them, then he's worthy of worship and they are not. Right? So by him all things were created. All things. In the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible. That's everything. Nothing's left out. All things have been created through him and for him. And so you have uh, everything was created by him, through him, and for him. So anything that was created was created by him, through him, and for him. That means that he's not created. Because it doesn't say all things... Uh, except for himself, he created. And God created him. That's not what it says. It says all things were created by him, through him, and for him. This is actually very similar language to uh, Romans 11.36. Right, so you have this, this beautiful uh, doxology at the end of Romans 11. Where Paul is praising God. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him, and actually this word for is in Greek is, the word, is also the word to, same word as in Romans 11. From him, through him, and to him are all things. So Paul's using almost the exact same language as he does in Romans 11 to talk about God. It seems like he's got a pretty close correlation between uh, God and the beloved Son. He's the creator of all things. One thing that we, that we skipped over that I want to uh, come back to briefly, it's at the beginning of verse 15 that he's the, the image of the invisible God. Right? So no one's ever seen God, Paul tells us in, in um, 1 Timothy. Um, right? Even when, when, when Moses wants to see God on the mountain, God says, you can't look upon me. Um, 
But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, this is different than being created, right? Because Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. But it doesn't say that he is in the image of God. It says that he is the image of God. He is the image that Adam and Eve were created in. Not physically, but in terms of the representation of his, his nature. And it's, we can talk, talk for a long time about how we understand what the image of God is. But the big thing is that he is the image of God. And we are made in the image of God. So there's a, there's a distinction. He's the creator who creates in his image. And then in verse 17, he's before all things, or, or uh, before could also be above. Uh, so it could mean, uh, it could be a restatement of the fact that he's ruling over all things. Could be a statement that he existed before all things, and so affirming that he didn't come into existence, he just is before everything. Kind of like Jesus says in the Gospel of John, before Abraham was, I am not I was. Right, so he is before all things, not he was before all things. And then in him, all things hold together. So he sustains all things. The world's not only created by him, but it continues to be upheld and ruled by him. He remains the supreme being, unlike um, in, in Greek mythology where the world is created out of a, of a, of a chaotic uh, mess of, of gods warring against one another and kind of creation is, a, is a, a, an unfortunate mistake as a result of that. And then the gods don't really engage too much in the world except when they want something and they're very uh, finicky. Uh, and, and there's no supreme being uh, in, in terms of Greek mythology, they all just kind of vie for power. That's not, I mean, P Paul is saying, this is very different. What I'm proposing to you about who Christ is is very different than what you're being taught in the culture. There's one God, he's above everything, he made everything, and everything bows to him. And in him, everything holds together. It's also very different from the way that a lot of people think about God uh, today, they're functionally what we would call deists. A deist uh, is someone who believes that uh, God, there is a God and he created the world and he's powerful, but after he created the world, he kind of wound it up like a clock and let it go and then just left. He said, I'm just going to go do something else. And he's no longer really interested in it. And now what runs the world are the natural laws that he put in place, but he's not really concerned at all with what's happening. So it's very different from the God that Paul tells us about, who Jesus tells us about, who Jesus reveals himself to be, who's intimately involved. I mean, the deist would never say that, that God became a person and stepped into this world that he created. That would uh, be something that they would completely deny. So Paul's saying, no, 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 God is intimately involved in what's going on in the world. Everything is held together by him. So, verses 15 to 17, Christ is the, uh, is the creator. He's the Lord of creation. Everything in creation was made by him, through him, for him, uh, he is supreme. And then Paul's going to move from that to now talking about in verses 18 to 20 how he's also the Lord of the new creation. Right? He's also the head of the body, the church. And we'll talk in a minute about how the church relates to this idea of the new creation. And he is the beginning I think what it means here by beginning is the beginning of the new creation. Because he, he explains what he means uh, by being the, the beginning, by saying, well, he's the beginning. That is, he's the firstborn from the dead. So he's talking about the resurrection. 
So what does the resurrection begin? Begins the new creation. He's the beginning. Uh, it talks about in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection of this new creation that God is, is bringing about. Now, in order to better understand kind of how this works, I want to show you a fun chart. I love charts. The way that uh, the, the Jews at the time uh, understood how kind of human history worked was something like this. Uh, God created and we exist in the present age. Uh, Paul in, in Galatians 1 calls it the present evil age. The present age, uh, according to the, the, the Jews at the time, the present age will continue until the Messiah comes. And when the Messiah comes, that's when the new creation is going to come in. God, he's going to defeat his enemies. He's going to put all his enemies under his feet. He's going to rule and reign. There's going to be a new creation. Everything is going to be made right. Uh, God's going to, going to reign in righteousness, and his people are going to dwell secure. And so we, you see um, the, kind of the predictions of this throughout the Old Testament about this time in the future when the Messiah comes and everything's going to be fine. And so it makes sense why when Jesus shows up on the scene and people start to kind of figure out this guy might be the Messiah, that their expectation is that, oh, great, right? We've just read about this in, in, in Mark not a couple weeks ago, right? He comes into Jerusalem and they're, they're acclaiming him as the king. They're ready to put him on the throne because if he's the Messiah, then this is the start of the new age. This is when God's going to reign. And, and Jesus has been trying to tell them the whole time, I am the Messiah, but I'm a very different Messiah than you think I am. And the, what you're seeing is, what, what you think is going to happen is true, but not yet. It's going to happen in a different way than you, than you thought it was going to. And so that there's not this, there's the present age, Messiah comes, and the age to come then actually something more like this, which is way more fun. As we, as we read through the New Testament, this is more the idea that, that we get. We exist in this present age, but when Jesus came and died and rose again, He inaugurated the new creation, that through his resurrection, the new creation, the age to come was, was being brought into the present age in some way. It was breaking into the present age. It was not here fully. It's begun. And so if you've ever uh, heard ever people talk about uh, that we live in the already and not yet kind of tension, that we are already in the new creation, but not yet in the new creation, and that's the idea because we still exist in this present age, so you are here, but if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. And that's not just you personally have been made new, you've actually come uh, into possession of the life of the age to come, eternal life, which in Greek, the word for eternal is just the ages, the life of the ages, or the life of the new age. Not weird new age, you know what I mean. So we live in this transition time where we are already experiencing the benefits of having uh, entered into this eternal life, this life of the age to come, and yet we're also still existing in the present age. And that, that ends when Messiah comes again. And then everything is made right. Super easy, right? Uh, this is all going to be online, so you don't need to try to draw this. Put it up and you can look at it later. So, as so we come back to the, the text, you have um, this idea now that, that if, if Christ is the beginning of the new creation, that the resurrection is the thing that kind of inaugurates this new creation. Um, 
that Christ is the first uh, of this new uh, this, this new race, right? So the first creation begins with the creation of the human race in Adam. The new creation begins with the resurrection of the second Adam, Christ. And he's going to be the head of a new race of people, those who have been reconciled to God and made new. And if you are reconciled to God through the death of His Son and have been made new, you've died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, then you are a part of a new people that's called the church. Jew and Gentile together reconciled to God in this new body. And so that's why I think in verse 18, Paul's saying not only is Christ the Lord of creation, He's also the Lord of this coming new creation that is represented now in this present age by those who are already reconciled to God, the church. And all of this happens so that He Himself, that is Christ, will come to have first place in everything. Um, this might explain a little bit uh, also what Paul means by the term firstborn, right? So we already talked about firstborn. It's the same word. And certainly it can be used in, in this case in terms of time. Christ is the first one to be raised from the dead as a part of this new creation. But it may also mean that he's the, uh, the, the one who is the um, the ruler over it as well. So you have the idea of him being the head of the body and having first place in everything might help us to understand that uh, better. So this idea, uh, uh, if um, you have a, a life verse, I don't necessarily advocate you having a life verse, but if you have one, and it's fine if you do, um, you could probably do worse than having uh, this part of verse 17 be your life verse. That he himself will come to have first place in everything. That'd be pretty good. That Jesus could be preeminent in everything. It's a good way to live your life. So the idea of first place is... is um, uh, translated elsewhere as preeminence or supremacy. And so... Um, Remember, one of the characteristics of sin is that it exchanges the truth about God for a lie and it sets up other gods who are going to have first place in your life over Him. Right? We're going to worship and serve created things rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. So you can usually tell what those false gods are by what has preeminence, supremacy, or first place in your life. So that's something to, to think about and we talk about as you um, discuss this later. Verse 19, uh, Paul's then going to explain, well, how is it that Christ is going to have first place in everything? Why, what is it that, that uniquely qualifies him to be preeminent in everything, in creation and the new creation? And specifically here, because it's, so close to it, uh, the new creation. How is, what qualifies Christ to be the head of the body, the church? What qualifies him to be preeminent in all things? So he explains it. Four, uh, you just start with, it was the Father's good pleasure. You could stop there. He, he didn't need to give you any other explanation than that. What, what qualifies Christ to be uh, preeminent in everything? Well, it was the Father's good pleasure, period. But he goes on to explain specifically two things that, it was, that God was pleased to do. Um, so you have, uh, in Him, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell, 
Here I think he's talking about the incarnation. So if we look at Colossians 2, 9, you see Paul saying that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So it's the same idea that in Christ, the fullness of who God is dwells. Right? Very similar to John 1.14, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So first, Christ can be the, 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 the unique um, preeminent one uh, in the new creation of this new humanity because He Himself became human. He's fully divine and He became fully human except for sin. So it was God's pleasure that in Christ all the fullness would dwell. And then two, that through Christ he would uh, reconcile all things to himself. And he does this by uh, making peace through the blood of his cross. So, that, so reconciliation means bringing two parties who are at enmity into a right relationship uh, brings peace between warring parties, and so how does he accomplish this reconciliation? How does he make peace? He does it through the blood of his cross. Notice here that he's not only talking about reconciling people to himself. He's reconciling all things to himself, and this is then further defined by saying things on earth or things in heaven. So he's reconciling all creation to himself because when sin entered the world, it didn't just break people, it broke creation itself. So that in Romans 8, Paul can say that creation itself is groaning for the day of its redemption. And so that God's plan is not simply to save people people and take them away to heaven when they die, it's to uh, save people, but, but more than that, to, to make uh, everything new, things in heaven and things on earth. We say this in our statement of faith. It says that uh, in God's limitless knowledge and sovereign power, He has purposed to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. So he's reconciling people to himself, but he's also doing something to creation. And as the new creation dawns, when he comes back, everything's made new. That doesn't mean that all people are going to be reconciled. We know from other places in Scripture that's not true. But his plan is not just to destroy everything that he made and take us away. It's, it's to make everything new, to, bring, to make everything right, to put everything back to how it should be and actually to make it more glorious than it was even before sin. So Paul's um, really zoomed out, right, because he's not just talking about what uh, the... God's doing with individual people. He's talking about what God's doing in all creation. And then he, he comes in, in verse 21, comes zooming back into the Colossians. Right? Uh, God's going to reconcile all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth, and although you were formerly alienated, which is the opposite of reconciled and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, so through the blood of his cross. So verse 21 is the truth about who the Colossians and who we were. We were alienated, separated from God. We were hostile in mind. We, we weren't interested in submitting to God. Romans 8 talks about the mindset on the flesh cannot please God. It's hostile to God. We were engaged in, in evil deeds. 
And even so, he's reconciled us through the death of Christ. So it's not because of anything that we did. He didn't say, and although you were really trying hard to please God, he gave you a little bit of extra grace so that you could be saved. It says, although you were not interested in God at all, he sent Christ to die for you and reconciled you. That's grace. But he didn't just do it so that you would be reconciled and be like, great, I'm so glad God saved me. I can do whatever I want now. No, he said he reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So his goal is not just that you would be reconciled, but also that you would be renewed. Right? That you would become what he's already declared you to be. He's declared you to be righteous in his sight, legally, and now he's uh, in the process of making you righteous actually, practically. So that at the end, he will present you before himself as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And don't miss that. That, that he reconciled you in order that he might present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Not that you might present yourself before him having done so much good after he saved you. Right? So you really participate in this. But it's, it's, it's him that's doing the work, right? Uh, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work to his good pleasure. Now, one thing that we need to talk just a minute about is um, verse 23 there's a condition, if, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So is it possible for us to lose our reconciliation to God? I would say no. I'd say, well then how does the condition work? Well, there's a tension but something to notice here. Verse 22, this, this idea, he has now reconciled you. Okay? Uh, he has reconciled is, in, in Greek, it's a, it's a perfect verb. That's a tense. And it means that there's a completed action in the past that has continuing effects into the present and the future. And so that he has reconciled you means that, there's, that he has done this in the past to you. He, uh, you have been reconciled. You are reconciled right now. If you are in Christ, you are reconciled to God. And that is a permanent status. But if you don't continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, it's not that you lose your reconciliation because it doesn't say uh, if indeed uh, you continue in the faith, you will be reconciled in the future or if you don't continue in the faith, you lose your reconciliation and have to get it back or something like this. I think he's talking about evidence that this future condition of remaining steadfast in the faith demonstrates the reality that you already possess this. And this is hard. There's a tension here. Right? You have been reconciled, and you prove that that's the case if you hold fast to the gospel. If you don't hold fast to the gospel, you didn't lose your reconciliation. It proves that you had not now been reconciled. So our perseverance in the faith matters but not so that we can get something that we don't already have, but so that we demonstrate that we do indeed already have it. 
And this is also the gracious work of God. In 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter 1, 5, Peter talks about this. He talks about the inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away that is reserved or kept in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God, so it sounds like God keeps us, protected by the power of God, but how does he do it? Protected by the power of God through faith. So the means by which God keeps us by his grace is by causing us to persevere in the faith, by causing us to hold fast to the hope of the gospel. So God preserves us, but he does it through our persevering in the faith. Which means we don't have liberty to check out on our Christianity. Paul ends this uh, section by, by um, saying a couple things about the gospel. It says, the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So each of these things point back uh, to the gospel. And I think what he's doing is a couple things. One, I think he's, he's telling the Colossians, the gospel that you heard is the same gospel, uh, the, the gospel that you heard and that has saved you, that has caused you to be reconciled to God is the same gospel that's been proclaimed everywhere. So you're not hearing a different gospel. So anybody coming in telling you, nope, you didn't get the whole story is wrong. What you heard is indeed what is being proclaimed in all creation. I just mean, think it means just everywhere that the gospel is going, it's this gospel, and it's this gospel that Paul was made a minister of, and that's going to transition us into the next section in uh, 124 to 2.5, where Paul is going to talk more specifically about his ministry, about his calling, and about how that affects the Colossians, and that's what we'll look at next week.